HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Restaurants employ over 15 million people nationwide. And two-thirds of all restaurants are independently owned and not part of big chains. Yet, currently, these small businesses are not represented in government relief negotiations. Roar is working to change that by fighting for relief opportunities for all restaurants. Roar is advocating for an eight-point plan in New York State that will allow restaurants to reopen and rehire when the time comes. Dozens of industry leaders have signed onto this plan, like Namwa Tea Parlor, Field Trip, Momofuku, and many more of your favorites. You can join them at change.org by searching for Roar, Relief Opportunities for All Restaurants. listening to Eat Your Words on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Kathy Irway. And unfortunately, um, we are not at the home of Heritage Radio Network in Bushwick, Brooklyn, which would be the shipping container at Roberta's Pizza. Um, we're home. Um, I'm in Brooklyn, at least, and we're trying to keep this coronavirus at bay. Um, but we're still committed to bringing you the latest food radio, everyone at Heritage Radio. And even if it's from our living rooms or bedrooms or even our sound more soundproof closets, because that's where I am right now. <laughs> um, I'm so excited to bring you a really cool book today. And, you know, I love to hunt out only the coolest, most interesting most unique books to bring on the show. And, you know, sometimes I can't get to them all right as they hit the shelves. Um, or in this case, the online shopping cards, since we're not going to actual bookstores. But on that note, side note, if you don't want to buy your books from Amazon, you can go to a great virtual bookstore that opened recently, which pools titles from independent bookstores. It's called bookshop.org. And it's awesome. Nobody's asking me to say this. I just think it's really great. Um, so check it out. But I was going to say the book that we're talking about today came out in October of last year. It's not that long ago, but it kind of feels like a long time ago. And it is called I kid you not, it's called Le Corbuffet, Edible Art and Design Classics. Its author is Esther Choi, an artist and writer based in Brooklyn. I was so looking forward to maybe meeting her and talking to her in person, but alas, she is on the phone as well, also in Brooklyn. So hello, Esther, and welcome to the show. Hi, Kathy. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining. And when we arranged this interview, it was much different times. Uh, 
we thought we'd be having pizza perhaps right now. So I have to admit, I was looking forward to that. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it's just, it's crazy. So how are you doing, you know, how are you holding up in your neighborhood and your neck of the woods? Everybody okay? Yeah. I mean, I think we're all trying our best, although I am, you know, I haven't seen a blade of grass in what feels like, you know, 30 (laughs) years, but it's uh, all things considered, you know, I'm grateful that my family and my friends seem to be in good health, but it's definitely, I mean, I'm sure you can, you know, I'm sure in your, your end of Brooklyn that you're probably also feeling the kind of palpable anxiety that seems to be in the air. It is. And it's also a weird need to like feeling of need to do something about it. I feel like a lot of people I know are feeling right now. So it's a whole mix. It's a whole tsunami of feelings. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that you're doing somewhat, you know, you're, you're hanging in there like we all are trying to. So, and, you know, I'm so glad to really talk about this book because it's a really, really great project. Um, so Le Cour Buffet, I mean, it's so playful. Um, it has a series of recipes and beautifully photographed um recipes, I guess, to accompany, uh, to accompany each one or images. And um, it can be very surrealistic uh, looking, but they're all kind of like have a fun, like reference to an artist or architect. So puns like, you know, quiche herring or Frida Kahlo. So it all sounds very playful. But then when you open the book, there's this really engrossing and scholarly introduction. So tell us a little bit about what you do and um, what you do outside this book and how you came up with the project that led to this book. Sure. So um, my background's in fine art and photography, and I was teaching in photography for quite a few years um, as an assistant professor, and then decided, you know, I just get these kind of hunches to do things and decided to do my PhD in architectural history, which, mm-hmm. you know, is not a, it's not a kind of quick detour one can make. So yeah, <laughs> this I is just a... <laughs> yeah, I'm a very inefficient person at times. So, <laughs> um, but I uh, was basically doing my PhD research um, abroad, and you know, primarily in. I mean, I was kind of all over the place, but um, but I happened to come across this menu for um, this dinner that was held in honor of Walter Gropius, who is sort of heralded as kind of you know father of modernist design. He was the head of the school, the Bauhaus School of Art and Design, that most okay. art and design education, you know, not only in North America but really worldwide, is based on. So, um, but seeing this menu really kind of triggered a lot of questions for me because you know, having been to all of these Gropius archives around the world, this particular artifact of this dinner that was held from him in, in England, it seems to say more about his privilege and his social circles and sort of more about his lifestyle than a lot of the actual, you know, material in his actual archive. And, you know, th- then I just couldn't sort of shake the shake the menu in some ways and sort of, you know, what it was sort of the qu- kinds of questions it was activating for me. Um, and keep in mind as well, you know, when one does a PhD, you know, I'm sitting in front of a computer and or in archives for the bulk of my day. And so I didn't really have a practice as an artist at the time. And I was really, I think, creatively starved. So, um, so this is a very kind of long roundabout way of saying that the menu then started to activate these kinds of questions for me. And then I started to put together these dinners based on uh, sort of food puns, um, partially mm-hmm. as out of, I think, you know, kind of creative deprivation, and then also partially 
as a way to think through some of these questions around, you know, publics and what it means to have certain narratives of people heralded and recycled and consumed and reproduced. Um, and, you know, but these were kind of intuitive moves I was making. It wasn't like some, yeah. you know, scholarly treatise was written and then I went out and like put on these like really like, fancy dinners. You were like procrastinating from doing your studies by oh, getting Yes. This, yeah. this book, I mean, I think to the dismay of my, you know, my PhD supervisor and everyone, you know, anyone that's ever taught me at Princeton, uh, this was really, a, this book was the result of procrastination. Um, you know, and weirdly when this book then became incredibly frustrating or difficult to work on for a lot of different reasons, like, you know, any creative project will pose these kinds of obstacles, then I would switch to working on my dissertation. So it was like actually weirdly, uh, productive, this kind of flip-flopping back and forth. You're feeding your productivity. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've learned over the years, I think, to trick myself um, into into re- trying to remain focused on on certain projects. But so, anyways, this is to say, like this book, I think, was really a kind of product of both of my training as a photographer, my um, experience as a an editorial photographer, you know, shooting for a lot of different kinds of magazines, um, as well as my you know my experience as an artist, and also my training as a historian. So it all kind of came together in this very weird way. <laughs> Mm-hmm. which, you know, is then this is the sort of product of it, for better or worse. I don't know. <laughs> we were joking a little bit off um, just before we got on air about how your name, Esther Choi, is the same as a Brooklyn chef's author or a New York City chef, I should say, Esther um, Choi Bites is her Instagram, I believe. Um, yeah, so exactly. What about your training as a cook or a food writer? Or, I don't know, recipe developer, because this I book- have no, yeah, no <laughs> training in that in those areas. So the one thing I know about myself is that I like to learn how to do things. And, mm-hmm. um, and one of the things that I've, that, that, you know, one of the reasons why I enjoy making art so much is that you end up learning so much based on an idea that you have, you know, so mm-hmm. whether it's like furniture design or cookbook writing, although I will say props to people who write cookbooks, it is incredibly difficult, uh, as a endeavor, but I have to say I learned so much, but, um, Yeah. So this was really, um, you know, I was interested in kind of appropriating the conventions of cookbook publishing and the networks Mm -hmm. and circulation networks of cookbook publishing in order to, um, you know, kind of insert a kind of critical art project in a channel, um, a network that, that typically wouldn't be the receptor for that type of, you know, message or that type of idea. So, um, but yeah, but back to Esther Choi, I mean, um, you know, I, I, Esther Choi is in general, like, it's a very, very common name. I think it's like the Jane Smith of like <laughs> Korean <laughs> names or something, you know, if you're born in, if you're born in North America or your first or second generation. Um, and, um, you know, I'm, I'm pretty, I've, I don't know Esther Choi, but I'm pretty convinced that at this point I probably have ruined her life in some way that she's associated <laughs> with this project, <laughs> given that she's actually a trained chef and, you know, reputable restaurant, restaurateur and, you know, very, you know, very well, um, you know, very well received by the culinary community. So I'm, I, I apologize to you, Esther, if you're listening. <laughs> I have re- also received emails from people thinking that I'm Esther Choi. Um, and so I guess she, she has a, or she had at least a kind of YouTube channel where she reviewed kitchen gadgets. So I've had offers from all kinds of, um, companies to, oh you know, God. check out whatever turkey baster or whatever they're, <laughs> whatever they're no trying to uh, pr- promote. But um, yeah, and they've been disappointed very instantly when I tell them. 
Oh, you know, I've always said that I would love to do a kind of spoof of a cooking show where it's like kind of like Parent Trap, you know, like Haley Mills meets Haley Mills, like Esther Choi meets Esther Choi. And then we can actually show the world that we are actually different human beings, even though, you know, Google's algorithm seems to think that we're the same person always. Oh, my God. Well, that's, yeah. that's an interesting challenge. Um, I was going to say, though, but, you know, someone who hosts dinner parties and you hosted a bunch of them, it sounds like um, throwing these parties for your friends with these fun ideas for dishes um, all through your creativity. I mean, that's something that I think a lot of people, uh, even those who like to cook, find a little bit, you know, scary or intimidating to do. So, I mean, so that's, you know, it's, it takes some guts. It takes some cooking uh, experience perhaps. I don't know. Do you like I don't know. Cook? I think, I mean, I love to, I think, you know, I was definitely, I came into this as a, a pretty passionate home cook, but mm-hmm. I'm nowhere near the level of, you know, people who have had professional training um, or people who are food writers or anything. So it was a, it was a big learning curve mm-hmm. to kind of acclimate myself into those, um, you know, into the kind of like protocols of like how, how food writing is actually operates and, and even just the precision of like, you know, the conversions between metric and imperial, uh, et cetera, like all of that was such a nightmare for me. But <laughs> just yeah, well, um, yeah, but I think, um, you know, but I, yeah, I mean, I, uh, my, my hope was that maybe in a way, like other people like myself that, or maybe not like myself, but people who are interested in art and design, but feel that they are unable to engage in certain kinds of creative activity because, you know, I don't have a studio or I'm not, I don't have training or whatever, because actually start to think about the tools, like everyday tools around them, you know, really through the lens of design thinking, right? Like thinking about it, like the lens of art making, Um, you know, Mm -hmm. what are ways in which like I could, you know, kind of push against the conventions of let's say how a pie is made and maybe relate that to maybe the way that, you know, a particular artist can use materials in, in his or her work. And so I, I think that that was for me the kind of prompt and trying to think about, um, trying to um, like replace the kind of space of art making and creative practice in the space of the everyday, because, you know, really the whole endeavor was such a reaction to how privatized um, and, and sort of um, cordoned off a lot of, mm experiences of art and design have become and and certainly as someone that was you know training you know writing a historical dissertation for eight years like that you know I realized also how complicit in some ways that I was in being in the academy and you know writing particular kinds of narratives around objects that have become so valued in a way Um, yeah you write that um yeah you write that the modernist artists that are referenced here throughout the book were touted you know, they touted the democratic values of making products that were available for the masses, yet, you're right, their designs are now stored away in museums and private collections. So definitely the opposite of accessible nowadays. Um, so it's interesting that, you know, why did you decide to connect these ideas or, or re-kind of interpret them through the lens of food? Well, I mean, you know, as you know, as people living within the kind of neoliberal <laughs> context, this kind of move towards privatization is happening everywhere in all sectors of, okay. you know, life yeah. and cultural production. So even in the food world, you know, you can right. see how elitist um, eating and foodstuffs have become, you know, like for instance, the other day, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Accessibility, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. I mean, just the other day I received an email 
um, a really nice email from someone that works at a food company that curates, you know, they create these kind of like luxury experiences of curated foodstuffs, um, wanting to talk about this book and use it as, I don't know, feature it on their website. And I had to be honest with them and say, you know, like this project is actually pushing against <laughs> the, the kind of like project that you're promoting through your company, um, which is to say that, you know, I think art like food at, well, at some point in time was considered a kind of part of everyday life that everyone, you know, could somehow engage with. And it's just become so inaccessible for so many now that, um, you know, I felt that there were these kinds of parallels taking place and that this might be a kind of a project that could try to triangulate some of those, some of those mm. concerns and some of those um, kind of market forces that are pushing everything towards the privatization and away from the commons. Hmm. Yeah, you write that there was a history of of artists that were really engaged in social and cultural commentary that kind of focused in on food because of its relatively low cost and accessibility. Um, I was really ex excited to read a little bit about that. What are some examples of those past artists? Right. So, um, I mean, these were projects that I had sort of uh, been thinking about for many, many years, particularly because they're projects that are interested in situating art as a participatory experience within the public sphere. So, mm -hmm. for, for instance, you can think about um, uh, the, the restaurant Food, which uh, took place in sort of the um, early 70s. It was devised by the artist Gordamata Clark um, with Tina Gerard and Carol Gooden. And so these three artists like basically took over a restaurant space and created a, a you know, a kind of participatory immersive experience um, in Soho in New York. And this was really before like things around experience economy, you know, now like every corporate corporation oh wants God. like some kind of curated, right. you know, yeah. culinary experience. This mm -hmm. was way before that. And um, <laughs> But, but there, there are obviously, you know, there's lots of examples that specifically were um, coming from kind of feminist art practices, and particularly because the domestic sphere was so hyper-gendered, but also totally ignored by the institutions of art making. So Woman House was a collective, all-female uh, all collective, um, that kind of took over an abandoned house in the early 70s and transformed every room into a kind of immersive installation. Um, mm. But there have been a lot of artists that have you know, like thought about rituals and and kind of how the domestic sphere is a place for political critique. I mean, um, uh, or even just eating in general. I mean, I was thinking of Alison Knowles, who was a Fluxus, uh, who is a Fluxus performance artist, and she had this project called the Identical Lunch around from 1969, in which she would go to the same luncheonette in Chelsea at the same time every day and order the same daily spread, which was basically this tuna fish salad on toast with lettuce and butter, no mayo, a cup of buttermilk or a cup of soup. And then she started to think about this kind of ritual as a performance that other people could enact. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, like Fluxus artists, like there was a kind of implicit score that someone could perform. And so this idea, I, I really kind of borrowed heavily from Fluxus precedents in thinking about how a recipe becomes a kind of script for some kind of imagined original, right? Because, you know, you can't really claim to have had the very first chicken pot pie, right? It's a kind of an idea of chicken pot pie in the same way that 
you know, not everyone would have known what the first identical lunch performed by Alison Knowles would have been. But you can start to kind of rethink about how to imagine or kind of re-script uh, the creation of something as your own. So there was a kind of parallel that I was trying to make between performance arts practices in the 60s and 70s and then the recipe, you know, but it could be done by anybody and and virtually, you know, anywhere, it's essentially, oh, if you have a, access to some kitchen implements and some foodstuffs. That is really fascinating. I love that. Um, I want to ask you a lot more about some of the specific examples of how you tried to recreate um, some of the ideas in here in this book, like some of the dishes that you wrote and recipes that you photograph. Um, We're just going to cut to a quick little commercial break and we'll be right back with more of that. Restaurants employ over 15 million people nationwide and two thirds of all restaurants are independently owned and not part of big chains. Yet currently, these small businesses are not represented in government relief negotiations. Roar is working to change that by fighting for relief opportunities for all restaurants. Roar is advocating for an eight-point plan in New York State that will allow restaurants to reopen and rehire when the time comes. Dozens of industry leaders have signed on to the plan, like Nam Wa Tea Parlor, Field Trip, Momofuku, and many more of your favorites. You can join them at change.org by searching for Roar, relief opportunities for all restaurants. Okay, we're back chatting with Esther Choi. Esther is a PhD in architectural history, and she has written the book Le Cour Buffet, Edible Art, <laughs> and it's just out from Presta last um, fall. Edible Art and Design Classics is the subtitle. So thanks so much for joining us again, Esther. I'm um, super happy to be here. You know, Virtually. I just, yeah, I just have to say, you know, talking about restaurants is a little funny right now, um, given the the um, the recent uh, unfortunate, um, you know, shutdowns of many of them, and and you know, sometimes permanently in in many cases due to COVID nineteen and shelter in place laws. It seems very uncertain right now. Um, when you were just talking about the. Um, some of the projects um, that were inspiring your mission here. Um, you know, tell me how you, what you're making of this whole situation, what you're seeing on in your neck of the woods. I mean, I think for a lot of people, uh, the COVID-19 um, pandemic has really drawn attention to sort of supply chain issues even, you know, and the kind of class inequality and income inequality that exists um, even in the food world, you know, like who are the delivery workers? Like who has the sort of privilege of being able to stay home and who are the delivery workers that still are out and about? Um, so yeah. I think, you know, like all aspects of um, the kind of the politics of how food is made and served and, you know, the different forms of labor that go into even how a restaurant, you know, is run. I think all of that has become incredibly transparent in, in ways that are troubling, but also I think really needed. And, um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's been a, it's been a very difficult time and especially with the rise of, um, East Asian or rise of violence and attacks, um, directed towards the East Asian communities and, primarily in North America and the UK, I think, you know, for me being Korean, Canadian, I'm really attuned to how in some ways, like, uh, I don't know, just how sort of our, our identities were so wrapped up with food. And I've noticed, I have to say, like a kind of relative silence on the part of the food community about this issue, which is oh, sort of, really? a, yeah, uh -oh. yeah, I have to say, yeah. <laughs> 
which is yeah. which is interesting given you know how you know you know people love to tout the probiotic benefits of kimchi but it seems like oftentimes and this is just really not even a deep observation but i think it's you know indicative of many communities um, immigrant communities that are you know centered around food production mm-hmm. that there's a kind of interest in the consumption of these commodities like food commodities or when food becomes a commodity i should say but not so much uh, n- not a terrible interest in the, the cultures um, from which these particular culinary traditions arose, you know, and the kinds of political issues um, that, that, you know, uh, that these communities have to deal with. So, yeah, so I don't know. I guess this moment this is to say that this moment has really activated my uh, thinking around some of these issues and, mm-hmm. you know, and food, you know, food is made by human beings. It's about human beings. And therefore, I think it's inherently political, right, in terms of, you know, who grows it, who makes it, who gets to consume it, who gets to enjoy it, et cetera, et cetera. So all of these yeah. things I think have become really, uh, really heightened concerns um, in this particular moment. No, well, I love that you focus in on how like every, you know, every food it tells a bigger story um, or it could, you know, in this book throughout and, you know, based on your um your dinner party series, you know, it, it was really like taking the idea of something that is an everyday occurrence and joyful and lighthearted, perhaps, um, but imbuing it with like a deeper, um, deeper, deeper meaning. So, so just to get into some of these um, dishes that are highlighted in here, and you have so many, oh my goodness, there's so many recipes I cannot choose. <laughs> I do not know where to start. Um one of the first ones that caught my eye was the Florence Knoll rolls. And this is an artist that I'm not too familiar with, Florence Knoll. Um, tell me a bit about her and why you decided to do these dinner rolls that were like, you know, dedicated to her. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So Florence Knoll was a really influential, legendary American architect and furniture designer. Of course, given her status as a, as a woman, mm-hmm. um, you know, a lot of her sort of design aesthetic was really, I think, minimized until fairly recently. Really? Like a lot of, you know, historians mm-hmm. and collectors have become much more tuned to sort of her, the brilliance really of her work. But Florence Knoll is really known for running the Knoll Company, furniture company, which, you know, still, it still exists today and really launching the careers of a lot of seminal American mid-century designers. Um, so a lot of the really famous mid-century designs that you'll see, it's because of Florence Knoll. And and so there was a kind of, um, I guess I was thinking a lot about how, um, you know, a lot of the furniture that she designed, a lot of the furniture that Knoll manufactured um, were, are sort of the kind of literal, pun intended, like bread and butter of how we think about mid-century American design and especially kind of certain kind of office furniture and a certain kind of, you know, domestic right interior. So, you know, starting to think about like sort of the the literal dinner roll as sort of the equivalent to sort of the, you know, bread and butter of the, you know, the furniture, of the furniture. Um, So, but then I thought, you know, but Florence Knoll's work is incredibly understated, like a dinner roll, but incredibly refined. So what are ways in which this dinner roll can be somehow elevated so that it becomes a very simple thing is actually very much about the details in some capacity. So, so this is my little like humble nod to Florence Knoll um, and, you know, trying to create something really hopefully enjoyable and exquisite out of something very simple. 
I love it. I love how it also gives this like sort of undue uh, or much deserved yet um, overdue, I should say, um, respect to the humble dinner roll, which like, you know, it's kind of a it's kind of a cool thing that we sort of take for granted. Um, Okay, well, let's go on to another one that caught my eye. It is the Shigeru Banchan two ways. (laughs) So I don't are you are you familiar with Shigeru Bounce work? No. Okay. <laughs> no, so he's a super interesting. No, no. So I mean, it's it's fine if you're not. And um, so he's a super interesting Japanese architect that mm-hmm. basically has like crafted an entire career for himself out of using recyclable cardboard tubes. Mm-hmm. And the real big innovation of Shigeruban is that you know these sh- tubes are beautiful in the way they're mm-hmm. aggregated and but incredibly simple as a technology. Um, but they're you know structural. They do all these things, and so he's done everything from like design emergency shelters to designing you know really beautiful pavilions with this cardboard roll. And I just started to, yeah. So I started to think about, you know, growing up eating Korean food, how so much Korean food, I mean, I feel it's a real kind of, um, you know, it's not a food of luxury, right? Like a lot of Korean food is really about privileging resources. I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, she's, she's putting her spin on it. So no, you know, um, yeah. But, you know, if you think about like traditional Korean food, it's sort of what peasants have. You know, it's what they had to work with, mm-hmm. right? So whether it's a stew or, you know, the very humble ingredients, nothing is super spectacular or, you know, like rare. It's just very simple ingredients, like most food, really. Yeah. And and really kind of just reusing the same five things in different combinations. So what's interesting to me about panchan, which are the kind of communal dishes that, you know, you'll have when you're enjoying Korean food, mm-hmm. is how oftentimes they'll just, you know, oftentimes panchan will consist of the same, you know, let's say five, ten ingredients, but recombined in different ways to produce radically different results. And so this kind of way of thinking about you know, thinking about resources in a way seemed to have a parallel to Shigeruban's way of, you know, thinking about uh, materials. So, so I've offered basically two ways of using cucumbers. And the first is a kind of like classic Korean cucumber salad. I guarantee if you make this, you know, it like, no, there'll be no leftovers. People Mm -hmm. absolutely love this. Um, But then the second um, way of rethinking the banchan with Cucumbers is a very kind of um, unusual, I guess, by Western standards, preparation in which the cucumbers are actually stir fried, and it's like radically different. You know, it's like a radically different, radically different taste, texture, um, and again, really simple ingredients. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Um, and that's sort of like you know, my ethos in going to every recipe was I gave myself a, a kind of a very solid budget, assuming that most people wouldn't be able to afford really fancy ingredients yeah. imported from wherever, and um, you know, would try to kind of keep, stick to something relatable that someone like you know a home cook like myself could do. Um, otherwise, what's the point, right? <laughs> like creating this like really difficult manual for. Uh, you know, putting together these recipes. So that's what um, I kind of love about this whole project is that every dish you're looking at, okay, I'm learning about this artist. I'm like getting the sense of how you reinterpreted their work, and but it's in it looks kind of exquisite in the photo, but it's actually really actionable and accessible and doable. And I want to make those cucumbers like tonight. So yeah, it's kind of cool. wonderful. Yeah. Um, sorry to interrupt you. No, not at all. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm happy to hear that. <laughs> yeah. 
I mean, it's, it's, I mean, I, I would hope that, you know, a lot of folks will be inspired to use it also like a cookbook, but I'm curious now, since this book has come out for a few months, have you gotten questions that were like, is this just an art book or should I just, cannot, can I actually make these recipes? Cause you know, they can look a little bit funky sometimes. Um, I don't know. <laughs> I, I know it's true. Um, I was really mindful of how food is presented typically. Mm -hmm. Um, And I wanted to use this as an opportunity to push against some of those imaging conventions, Um, particularly because I, you know, yeah. So, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So you'll see sometimes like oftentimes I'll use, um, you know, and I produce this book with a pretty um, modest budget, I'll say. So I had to allocate most of my costs towards film and film processing because I shot it all with medium format. And so, you know, I had to think about, well, I don't have, you know, I can't 3D print this fancy thing for this shot. You know, what can I use? And I literally basically used most of the packaging the food came in. Um, But try to think about the aesthetics of it through the lens of sculpture rather than more normative conventions of like, you know, how food is presented, which is usually, you know, to sell, it's kind of either mm-hmm. to sell, sell produce or, you know, there's usually some kind of marketing, you know, um, initiative or something Absolutely. like backing the way that food is imaged. So this is why I think you'll see really unconventional um, images of food. But my hope is that the pictures themselves can start to activate some of those questions around waste and, um, you know, food production and commodity production, et cetera. Um, huh. But uh, yeah, I don't know. Did I get off topic? there the whole overall design of it um i love how you've designed it it's definitely very subversive it's fresh it's something that completely exists outside of a lot of (laughs) commercial cookbooks that you know you see um and you know i mean just just looking at some of the names too the kim gordon kimchi or whatever like there's the yokonomiyaki um and, um, you know, so many more. And I also have to mention that the ingredients list, the text is unusually large and it takes up most of the page, um, whereas the instructions take up a much less amount. And I'm curious why that was. Um, yeah, that's a great question. So um, I worked with the, the really the design of the book. I'm super indebted to Studio Lynn, a graphic design um, mm-hmm. office based in New York. And um, so I worked with Alex Lynn and Jenna Myung, um, two of the designers there. And really that move was a proposition on their part because I came to them with a certain set of art historical references mm-hmm. and said, listen, I'm interested in process art. I'm interested in instruction sets. I'm interested in fluxus. Right. And so, um, but you know, there was a kind of, but is there a way we can emphasize materiality and thinking about this, the way that you would think about a studio practice in art making versus more normative conventions of how, you know, food is written about or, you know, Mm -hmm. kind of conventionalized in cookbooks. And so they came back with the proposition that they would blow up. I mean, really, actually, the initial proposal had the text at, I think, even like three times the size of what it's at. Oh, yeah. I think the book would have been probably 600 pages long. But but as a way to really emphasize materials, right? So you can think about like vast quantities. So even just making like two tablespoons of olive oil and like making that ingredient like three times the size that you would normally see that text, then you can start to think about 
literal materials and their kind of viscosity and, you know, just like as, as, as actual materials that you would use in an artist studio, for example. So, yeah, it makes me look at them in a different way. And like, that's great. I, I've seen a lot of cookbooks, so I, I just I love it. <laughs> I will say my mother was really happy when she yeah. saw that because she was super happy as a 72 year old. Sorry, I shouldn't probably divulge her age. Sorry, mom. But um, but uh, but, you know, she was saying it's like she doesn't have to squint to see it from across the across the room. So <laughs> that's also a benefit. Um, oh, my goodness, Esther. There's uh, so much more to talk about and there's not that much time left, but I do have to ask um, well, one more thing, which is, uh, you know, what exactly do you think art is? Can my dinner parties, and I, I'm fond of throwing dinner parties or anyone's dinner parties for that matter, is, can that be considered like, like an artistic undertaking or what, what do you think of that? I mean, I borrow very much from the Duchampian logic, mm-hmm. um, that anything can be art. It's about how it's framed. And in, in this way, this project borrows heavily from Duchamp. It borrows heavily from even like pop art and Andy Warhol in terms of thinking about how everyday ordinary objects can be rethought. Um, we thought it was like as a kind of framework for asking different sets of questions, like, you know, probing questions. Um, and I think in that way, the dinner party or any space really in, in your life can offer kind of become a platform for asking um, deeper sets of questions about, you know, whether they're political or economic or social or aesthetic. Um, and I would invite that. And I think most artists today, you know, that really borrow from kind of post-conceptual traditions really um, embrace that kind mm-hmm. of logic. I love it. All right. So I um, say go for it. Sounds good to me. <laughs> go for it. <laughs> Thank you for that vote of confidence. I really appreciate it. And I'm so sorry that that's about all the time we have for today. But thank you so much for joining us, Esther. And um, everyone should check out Le Cour Buffet. It's out from Prestel. You can order it and support a local bookstore if they have it on their website as well. And uh, I want to thank our lovely engineer, Jess, and everyone at Her- Heritage Radio Network. And uh, we'll see you next week. Thanks. Eat Your Words is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Never, never, never.